I think if you don't know your purpose in the public service arena, you'll end up engaging in the in work that can only be detrimental to you. So for me, you know, from the very get-go, I knew why I was there and what I was there to do. And allowing myself to have that lens allowed me to engage in, in work that made me proud. You know, you look back and you're able to be like, wow, you know, I invested my time in a way that made a positive difference in the lives of people who entrusted me with their vote. And so it's just, it's central to who I am. Like I want to walk in into any initiative or program and know that my time is in, it's being invested in something that's really making a positive difference in the lives of others. And if it's not, I don't want to be a part of it. That's Juana Matias, a servant leader with a remarkable story. She's a first-generation American, the first Latina ever elected to the Massachusetts State House, and a former candidate for Congress who, although she did not win the race, vastly outperformed expectations and earned more votes than other candidates who raised far more money than she did. I am thrilled to lift up her voice and her experience on today's podcast. Juana is a first-generation American who moved with her family to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic when she was five years old. She grew up watching her parents and others in her community work hard to build a life in their new country. Juana went on to complete undergrad at UMass Boston and a law degree from Suffolk University before doing a year of service with the Justice AmeriCorps program, where she provided legal services for unaccompanied immigrants and asylum-seeking children in Massachusetts. In 2016, she challenged a Democratic incumbent in the 16th Essex District, and when she won that race, she became the first Latina ever elected to the state legislature in Massachusetts. During Juana's first term as a state representative, Massachusetts Congresswoman Nikki Tsongas unexpectedly announced that she would not run for re-election. And after much soul-searching, Juana decided to jump into that race and became one of 13 candidates vying for that seat. Ultimately, Juana didn't win the race, but she came in third in that really crowded field, vastly overperforming expectations and proving that here in Massachusetts, a female candidate of color without a privileged upbringing and easy access to networks of wealth and influence could be a viable political candidate. Juana is a trailblazer with a fierce commitment to serving the working class communities like the one that raised her. And in this conversation, she talks about her journey to politics, what it was like running both state level and congressional campaigns, and how she stayed resilient as a candidate and as a woman of color constantly challenging assumptions that a Latina woman had no place sitting at tables of power and authority. She is a force of nature and a remarkable servant leader, and I'm thrilled to welcome her to our show today. Juana Matias, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Max. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So I'm going to start where I always start, which is, what's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? I will say that my earliest memory of service and seeing it actually has to do with my parents. So I remember this English teacher who would come to the Haverhill Public Library on a weekly basis, twice a week, and sit with my mom and dad and teach them English for free, just as a volunteer. And I just saw that as such a profound act of service. My parents wanted to integrate. They wanted to learn English, you know, 
for the various reasons of the fact that it allow, uh, uh, affords you opportunities for better jobs and integrating into society. And so, you know, that image and that action of me going with them and seeing them receive the service of someone who wanted to give back uh, is something that's always stuck with me. And in addition to that, I would say my mother really is probably the most selfless person I've ever known. And there are so many instances in my upbringing where I saw her be of service to others, where she taught me you do and you expect nothing in return because you do because you want to be of service to others. And so, you know, that act of like seeing my parents go to English courses and seeing a white counterpart dedicate their time after working eight and eight hour day really is something that's always stuck with me. And I would have to say my mom is a pillar of what service is and instilled those values in me from a very young age. Yeah, great, great. And I know we're going to be talking a lot in this uh, this episode about how service is a theme through your life. But tell us a little bit more about your family life growing up, some key experiences that shaped you. So when it comes to my family, I have to talk about our immigrants story, right? right so right. I immigrated from the Dominican Republic in the um, early 1990s and saw my parents who were both educated, arrive to this country without having the ability to speak the language. And saw them struggle. Here, my mom had a bachelor's in, in accounting. My dad has had a master's as a chemical engineer. And they were working in factories, uh, struggling to learn English, still trying to put food on the table for four children, navigating a new country, a new community without their familial support. And so, you know, my upbringing was one of challenges and tribulations, but it's made me who I am. And seeing the sacrifices my parents underwent really were an impetus of my wanting to dedicate my life to public service, right? Mm -hmm. Because those challenges and obstacles I had to overcome um, were things that kind of drove me to say, well, how do I make this not be the case for that person that's coming behind me? And so you know, I appreciate my upbringing. I appreciate those challenges because they made me who I am today. They make me value democracy and what this country offers in a really profound and meaningful way. And I've said this time and time again, I am who I am because of my parents and I owe them um, all of my accomplishments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you ended up going to UMass Boston and then if I'm understanding the timing correctly, you went from UMass Boston to serve with AmeriCorps, right? Correct. So Correct. I went on to UMass Boston. And while I was at UMass Boston, I, I, I completed my first service year as a uh, Justice AmeriCorps. Okay. No, as a, not as a Justice AmeriCorps, as a um, Jumpstart. Jumpstart. So while you were in college, you were serving while with Jumpstart. I was in college. Yep. I was uh, completing a service year in Jumpstart. Interesting. How'd you get connected to that and kind of what led to that choice? Yeah, I think there might have been like an informational table outside that talked about come complete a service year um, in the classroom. You'd be going to be a support staff in the classroom working in low income communities with children yeah. who yeah. are disadvantaged. And that's what kind of spoke to me. I was like, oh, this would be great. Yeah. I was that child. Mm -hmm. And so it's always been really important to me of how am I giving back? to this, the very issues that I face in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so I filled out the application, went through the training, and I was placed in a pre-K program in, in Dorchester. 
And there I was, the majority of kids were poor, low income, English language learners who, from parents who were immigrants. And I was spending my time adding support to the classroom, reading to children. Again, super meaningful work and being there, who do I see? I see myself in these kids, right? Yeah, I had yeah. arrived to this country at an early age and understood the challenges that my parents had and being able to dedicate time to my education, right? Like their jobs and the demands that they had limited that. So this was a great way to give back and do really meaningful work um, that really spoke to my story as well. Yeah. And then you did Justice Corps after. Was it was there any question that you were going to do your service? Like, was it a hard choice or or just like, of course, this is going to be the next step for me? So, you know, huge amount of time between my UMass days. And then once I did my Justice in America Corps service year, because I had, you know, worked as a social worker after college, then went to law school for three years. And then upon uh, okay. graduating law school, um, I hear about this Justice AmeriCorps program. I think like a fellow law student sent it to me and I'm like reading the job description and I'm like, I would love to do this. This is exactly what I want to do. Defending unaccompanied minors who just crossed the border before the Boston Immigration Court doing asylum and SIJ petitions. I was like, wow, this is again, work that speaks to me because I was an immigrant to this country and I know how nerve wracking and, and, um, and difficult it is to assimilate. So, um, you know, then I see how much I'm going to get paid and I'm not going to get paid. And I'm still like, I want to do this. This is incredible work. Wow. And mm -hmm. Went forward, went to DC, got trained and then was placed luckily at was in Worcester at, uh, uh, community legal aid. And again, meaningful, fulfilling work. You know, I didn't mind staying at our offices till eight and nine. And I purposely did it because I knew that immigrant family was working till five or six needed to go home. And I would accommodate myself to them because I had lived that experience and had yeah. seen my parents live that experience. And it was so gratifying to be able to take that you, that young child, you're talking about seven-year-olds. I had five-year-olds on my dockets who should never be wow. in a court. Yeah. Right. Like it's one of the most intimidating places. And you had to relive some of your most traumatic events in your life, in your country of origin. So, you know, it was just super meaningful work to take that case and through my efforts, ensure them a clear path to becoming a resident and then potentially a, a citizen, giving them access to quality healthcare, a great education, things that just did not exist in their country of origins. I knew my work was life-changing and I love doing it. And I could see day in and day out the impact it had on their lives and their families' lives. And um, it was probably one of my, you know, most memorable times um, in terms of work mm. that I've dedicated my life to. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to ask, and it's a theme I'm going to visit later, but why did you decide to switch from social work to law? What led to that choice? Huh, it's a great question. So social work, to be perfectly honest with you, wasn't in my calling. Like it wasn't something I had thought about. I went to UMass and I was a political science major. And my, my idea was like, I was going to go and work in government. And at some point down the line, when I finished law school, law school was always in, in the, in the cards, mm. um, I would run for office. So actually I graduated in 2009, Max, and it was during the, uh, a really bad time with the recession and I couldn't find a job. And so, you know, I was working um, as a server and one of the 
colleagues there was like, well, you know, you have a, a degree. Uh, there's this nonprofit uh, that's looking for social workers, mm-hmm. you know, my interest in being of service tied to it. And yeah. I ended up working at Children's Services of Roxbury as a child specific social worker. And I think it happened for a reason. In retrospect, I wouldn't have changed it. That's where I learned and it has served me well empathy because you're working with youth and you're working at the intersection of some of the most difficult social issues, right? Youth who do not have a parent, who come from poverty, who potentially have mental health and substance abuse problems, who have trauma. I mean, if that doesn't teach you humility and doesn't teach you why it's important to give back, I mean, I don't know what does. And so really lucky that that's where I started my career. Yeah. And I I bring it up because we do talk to a lot of folks in our community who are like, I don't know if I can run for office without a law degree. Um, And what would you say to those folks? You can, you absolutely can can run for office without a law degree. I will say that, you know, I went from doing legal aid work to running for office. And I will say that my law degree did help me to be effective at the state house, right? When you get to the state house and you finish campaigning and now you're in governance, yep. um, you want to file legislation. That's a part of what legislators do. And for me, I definitely wanted to propose legislation that spoke to black and brown people, socially economic and socially and economically disadvantaged people, because I felt that they weren't being advocated to the extent that they needed to. So my law degree allowed me to hit the ground running, right? I had one aide, right? One aide who's probably an undergrad. I don't get an entire budget of legal counsel and support staff. And so for me, it was super helpful. I was like, okay, so what is my agenda? What are the issues I heard on the campaign trail? What are the issues that I've always dreamt of advocating on? How do I go about crafting legislation? And so Um, That allowed me, you know, the fact that I had gone to law school allowed me to say, well, let's see what California is doing when it comes to student disciplinary issues. Oh, well, this is an interesting legislation. I like this provision, don't like this provision. Well, let me see what our provisions are in the state and how do they either conflict or not conflict. So it does help, but it's not necessary. Um, You know, at at, at the Massachusetts State House, so long as you put something on paper, um, you do have legal counsel who can guide you in really making it look more like a statute and legislation yeah. can also make sure it's kind of taken into consideration other subsections of the law. But for me, as a young woman of color, having my my law degree just helped me hit the ground running, right? And in my first term, I was able to file 10, 12 pieces of legislation on issues that really mattered to my district, but yeah. it's not necessary. I think there are so many, so many um, professions that you come from and those lived experiences can help inform what you want to advocate on behalf. Being a person of color can help you know what you want to advocate on. So it's not necessary. It can be helpful. Um, But there are other, you know, at least in Massachusetts, other interventions that can support you in the process. Great. Helpful to hear. But so let's, all right, let's get to politics. So what, you know, you ran for the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 2016. Tell me about the process of deciding what, what was that like for you to decide and why then? Why then? I will start there. You know, I had since college, you know, I studied political science. I went to law school with this intention of I want to run for office and advocate for my community. 
And so at the time, I felt we continued to have some of the most pressing issues in the state, double the unemployment rate of the state level. Our public schools were just taken over by the state, by state intervention. I mean, one of the poorest communities in Massachusetts. And so for me, it was, huh, I don't, I no longer need to wait. I don't think we're getting the representation we need and I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. And so that's where the thought started. And then I sat and I remember this day vividly. I saw it in a library and I did the pros and cons of running for office, right? Like, what are the pros? Well, I get to be of service, which has been a lifelong dream. Yep. Get to really impact my community for the better. And then on the cons, we're like, well, I can lose. How am I going to raise money? Can I really do this? Mm. If I lose, how does this impact my career? How do I survive for the next year right. um, just running full time? And so it's crazy, but I never got to a yes, really. I, I <laughs> so what happened? I, I was in this, I was in this like gray area. Yeah. Which is very common in the law. And so I had mentors and advisors who were like, well, you need to just make a decision. And I was like, well, I have to, you know, I, I'm quite not there. And they're like, well, go and take out the nomination forms and see if you can get the signatures. Right. So I was like, you know what? That, that's right. Let me let me see if I can get the signatures. And so there All I right. am knocking on doors and I'm doing the work of a candidate. And so once you start doing that, there's no way back is what I would say. Like there I was running a campaign. I got the signatures, you know, going to people's doors. I was getting a response that I didn't expect. And the wheels of the bus just kept moving forward. Um, but I think it's hard, especially for women to say, yes, I'm doing it. Right. For me, it was like, well, I'm going to pick up the nomination forms. I filed with OCPF um, and I'm going to try to do this. Um, but I had people pushing me and um, I never looked back once I started doing the work and collecting signatures yeah. uh, and raising money. It just the momentum kept me moving forward. That's so interesting. I've uh, not, not heard a story like that. That's fascinating. So you mentioned you were getting a response you didn't really expect. Say more about that. You were knocking on doors. What was coming at you? Yeah, here I was knocking on people's doors and people wanted to talk to me. They were explaining to me their concerns and their issues. I was relating to all those issues, letting them know that your lived experience or my lived experience. And they were saying, well, come on my support. And they were like, of course, let me sign that nomination form. And I have three other family members here who could also sign. And, you know, there were instances where I would hit doors where people would say, no, I'm with the incumbent and I'm not going to support you. Um, but in the hitting the doors very early on, just for signatures, I saw that there was room for my candidacy. And, you know, after that, there was no going back. You know, I got the, 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 the signatures filed with, um, with the state and mounted a campaign. And it was, you know, it was a small campaign. I had maybe five, six regular volunteers who came to, to, to my office, um, raised 40 something thousand dollars, um, but was very organized in terms of what I needed to do. And with that small team, you know, created work streams and delegated work in a very intentional way. And eventually, you know, 11 months later, um, I was able to win my race against an incumbent who had been entrenched in local and state politics for some time. Um, it took, you know, raising money, talking to voters constantly, having mm -hmm. a communication strategy, doing outreach um, to state partners. I think it was very strategic and in, in understanding, okay, so 
I'm running against this candidate. What makes me different? Right. And Mm. so I believe in a woman's right to choose. I believe our LGBTQ community um, should be supported in every aspect of life. And so knowing that those were things he wasn't supportive of, you know, I reached out to those partners, introduced myself to them and my candidacy and um, just continue doing the hard work of talking to voters. Those are the people who decide on day of election. And so when you won that seat, defeated the incumbent, you became the first ever Latina elected to state level office in Massachusetts. What was it like being a first? Like, were you conscious of that on the campaign trail? And just say a little bit more about that experience for you. That's a great question. I wasn't conscious of it in the early months of the campaign trail. As we were getting closer towards the end, I was. I was like, so who are our House members? Is there diversity? And at the time, there there wasn't. There was another woman of color running for another seat. And we ended up being... I ended up being one of two women of color in the entire Massachusetts state house um, and became the first Latina immigrant elected to the chamber. Mm-hmm. And so once I got there, right, it was challenging. I'd be in a room and I'd be surrounded by white males. Um, you feel out of place, um, right? Because this is one, not what I expected. Um, and two, You're there and you constantly feel like you have to make the case for communities that you, that these people should be aware of. Um, And so it was challenging. It took some time to, to get used to. The good thing about me is I'm outspoken. And I feel like in these rooms, I was not intimidated to do what I was there to do. And this, to bring this perspective that is lacking on what we should be doing on behalf of communities of color um, in a really meaningful way. So, so yeah, so in Massachusetts, you know, we're not where we need to be when it comes to representation right. and you feel that you feel that in a real way, um, when you're in the chambers, but I would say that that was why I was there. And I made sure that anytime that we were talking or listening or needing to advocate on something that I was bringing the voices that had been disenfranchised, uh, previously. So, what I'm hearing, it sounds like you were just so connected to your purpose that that led that, you know, the imposter syndrome, you were dealing with that, but really it was like, I'm here to fulfill a purpose and that is not going to stop me. Am I hearing that correctly? It sounds like that's what you're, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I've always told people that when I got to the house, in addition to drafting your own legislation, there are nonprofits who have legislation prepared and they were, they're looking for a leader to carry that bill. And so when I was there, they reached out and the Safe Communities Act was a pro-immigrant right bill. And they were like, would you carry it? And I went back to some of my advisors and mentors and said, oh my God, can you believe they're giving me this bill? It's like my story. Like, of course, this is exactly why I'm here. And they were like, well, that's actually what you need to stay away from. You need to get go into the building, build relationships, nostr the pot. And for me, it was like, no, I'm here to do this very work. Like this is an, I see it as an obligation, a duty. This is justice for me. And so, um, I was, you know, authentic and unapologetically me, um, because I believe in, you know, servant leaders who carry their values with them and decision-making and in governance. And so that was my first test. And in looking back, I was so proud in, in terms of how I handled that. I felt that I can carry this piece of legislation 
and still be productive and build relationships in the building while staying to, true to who I am and what my community sent me here to do. So powerful. So powerful. And I know, you know, to put a little more detail on this story was you're you newly elected, you're a freshman, you know, representative, and you took on this big bill, right? Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about that, you know, the, your first year where you just got a bunch of stuff moving. Tell us about that and how it was newly, received. Yeah. Newly elected, Max. Yep beat an incumbent who was a part of the democratic establishment. So I'm walking into this building and everybody's just looking at me like, who are you? Can we trust you? And why are you right. here? Right. Right. Because okay. the incumbent was supported by state establishment and by local establishment. So I needed to go in there and dismantle those assumptions and presumptions that people were having of me mm. that, you know, I was there to make trouble. And so I reached out to everyone, introduced myself, why I was there, what I hope to accomplish by working alongside them. Mm -hmm. And that really brought down some of the misconceptions that people could have had of me. Um, and it served me well, and it continues to serve me well today because I am able to still leverage a lot of those relationships. But I get into the building, freshman, drinking out of a fire hydrant, right? Like I have a month or two to file all the legislation I want. I'm meeting with local groups who want to tell me what they would like to see um, when it comes to funding hundreds of nonprofits are hitting your uh, knocking on your office door, right. wanting to introduce you, wanting you to get a co-sponsor their bill, co-sponsor their budget amendment. I mean, it is overwhelming, especially because as a state representative in Massachusetts, you have one staff, hundreds of emails. Wow. Yeah. I represent the poorest community in the state. So when I get calls, they're not the calls you get in Concord. They're not the calls you get in Brookline or right. Brighton. They are very different calls. I mean, people with language barriers, people who don't even understand what an agency is, how to complete an application. I mean, a lot. It's a lot of work. And um, when you're serving a social, socioeconomically disadvantaged community, it is even more burdensome. So for me, I'm navigating all of that. I want to be effective. I want to be seen in the district. I want to make sure I have a strong constituent services um, in our office. I want to make sure that I'm supporting the initiatives of the community, which culturally in our community, people want to see you. They want to mm. see the person that represents them. Yeah. So we have a lot of demands. And then I also want to legislate. I also want to write concrete legislation that addresses some of the most pressing issues we're facing. I want to make sure that I bring dollars to the poorest community in the state to do meaningful work locally. Um, and I also want to build relationships and be respected by leadership because whether you realize it or not, Max, it's a part of the diagram, you know, having those relationships, making sure that leadership knows right. that you're there, that you're mm -hmm. willing to work across the aisle, that you're collaborative makes a difference on everything yeah. I just said, on all of those things I want to accomplish also has leadership has some weight on that. So, you know, People were like, stay away from that bill because it's controversial. Here we are in 2017. Trump is rolling out some really racist immigration policies, to be put it frankly. Yeah. And they're like, why take this hot topic? The House is not going to vote on this. They didn't vote on this bill last year. And for me, it was just, I'm one of you. Had to. I had to had do to. it. It's, it's, it's my story. I'm a first generation immigrant. I represent a community that's. 80% Dominican 
an immigrant. And so <laughs> absolutely not. And, you know, I think there is a way to advocate where you are respectful mm-hmm. to your colleagues. And I think yeah. I proved that with my leadership on this bill. You know, I, I went to my colleagues who didn't support it. I went to my Repo- Republican colleagues. I tried educating them on the issue, bringing them along, but did it in a manner that wasn't disrespectful to them, but did justice for my district. And for folks who don't know how it worked out, tell us how that bill unfolded. Yeah, that was that was, you know, I learned so much from that piece of legislation. It was it was really an opportunity for me because it taught me in a very short period of time what could possibly take years and years for an elected official to learn. Same more. Um, Same more. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, here we have this bill. I started noticing having meetings across the state in, in the building and the votes weren't there. The votes weren't there with Democrats. We're not talking about Republicans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so one of the things that I realized really quickly was when you read the bill, right, it, it all it had to do with law enforcement. What is law enforcement doing under this situation and under these circumstances? And when I would look at my coalition of partners, over 150 coalitions were supporting this bill across the state, law enforcement was nowhere to be found. So the first thing I did was reach out to law enforcement. And I met with uh, Police Chief Kais, who I hold in the highest esteem, one of the you know, best working relationships I had while I was in the building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to him and said, how do I get the mass chiefs of police to support and endorse this bill? And just coincidentally, he he was the president of the chiefs of police. He also taught immigration law. So he was really into this. And we worked for over a year on a compromise bill that got the endorsement of, of the police chiefs of Massachusetts. We had a press um, event where police chiefs from across the state came in uh, to endorse a new amended version of the bill. And, you know, it forced leadership to to have to come to the table, right? Because before it was, well, law enforcement's not involved. Like, you know, we can't get behind this. And now your police chiefs, the people who do this work are telling you we should implement this law. So what's your excuse now? What are you hiding behind? And um, that was such a huge accomplishment. You know, I got, you know, coalition members, people who are older than me, people who had been doing this work much longer to 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 stop and think about how are we being inclusive? Like, right. Like if we're talking about inclusion and racial equity, how do we preach what we talk about? And it was great to bring law enforcement along, because I think at the end of the day, the the amended version of that bill was was the most accurate version of that bill. And although we weren't able to get it passed in both chambers, I think making law enforcement be a part of it did help move it along. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing story. So you run for a state of representatives. You you win and become the first uh, Latina member of the state, uh, you know, in the state. And then um out of nowhere, Democratic Congressman Nikki Tsongas announces her plan to retire, and suddenly there's an open seat in the Massachusetts congressional delegation, and you decide to throw your hat in the ring. Tell us about that decision. How'd that go down? I mean, you are still, you know, very new to the state ledge. Very, very, very new. <laughs> it was a hard decision, Max. Um But a decision that in retrospect, I do not regret. It was the right decision. 
Um, and I had mentors and advisors, you know, some people were reaching out that were like, are you noticing she's not running for re-election? Lawrence is the second largest city. You represent Lawrence. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, my life dream, like my life dream was to run for that very seat. So I had always wow. said, well, I, while I was at UMass, I had said, okay, so I'm going to run for state representative. I'm going to be of service there. And then if I could ever run for Congress, I mean, I mean, it's like thinking about your most lavish dream. That was my dream. And the door so when just that happened, right. yeah, yeah, the door just opened and I'm having people reach out to me. And to be honest, honest with you at first, I was like, well, am I qualified? Mm. Am I really qualified to be a congresswoman were some of the initial thoughts I had. So I did have those imposter syndrome thoughts. Um, and then, you know, had a couple of meetings around what it would take to run for the seat. Yeah, you, you have an important base, but you need resources. And so it was meeting with donors, meeting with Emily Cherniak and others around whether this made sense. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I never really got to a yes. <laughs> The circumstances of life led me to a yes. Um, you know, when people would say to me, well, can we create a list of how we're going to get to a million dollars? It was like a million dollars. I couldn't even conceptualize a million dollars. That's what right. I need to run for Congress. And I'd be like, well, I don't even know how that's going to happen, but I'm willing to do the work if people are willing to support me. Right. But I don't have a Rolodex of a million dollars. Um, I come from a poor working class household. Right, right. And so I met with people, I met with donors um, because others introduced me to these people. New politics, to be perfectly honest with you, was introducing me to donors to try to gauge whether I could raise money for the seat because, you know, the profile was there, had a really interesting story, you know, first generation uh, yeah. Dominican American immigrant from the community has been in the community, serving the community, but can you raise the money needed for this race? And I'll never forget this. I'm meeting with donors, getting a sense of where they're willing to support me. And I meet with this white woman in Boston who supports women candidates. And she's talking to me and she's like, great, great. She's like, so are you in? I was like, well, I'm having conversations with people to gauge their support, to see if I can raise, um, if I can get to $250,000 and I'm going to run. And she says to me, will you come and talk to me when you're in? My donors don't give to people who are thinking about running. Right. And I appreciated that because it allowed me to say and realize like I'm either in or I'm not. Right. And I understand that people that are going to invest in your vision and your candidacy need to know you're in, right? I'm asking people to double max. And so from there, you know, we, we gave an exclusive to the Boston Globe. Um, we thought we had a little bit more time, right? I was still trying to raise money. So, you know, once the announcement came out, there was a message around, I've raised this X amount of money. And they actually reached out and they were like, hey, we're not waiting till next week. We want to run the story today. And I remember this, I was in the chamber at still being a state representative and yeah. fulfilling my obligations. And I get this text message from someone on the new politics team. Like they want to run the story at 5 PM online. Are you good? And I'm like, let's go. It's game let's time. Do it. Let's, <laughs> let's do, do it. it. Right. So again, it's like, I say this to women. Cause I think we overthink things and I overthink things. Um, and I was just still like, 
fighting with like, am I prepared? Am I going to be able to raise the enough money? But once that article came out, there was no looking back. You just and I'm I, in. I'm in. I had worked my butt off. I was. I had a lot of barriers uh, ahead of me, especially on the money front. Um, at that point, there were only two people in. This race eventually had like 18 people. Yeah, in, a lot of folks. Yeah, 13. Um, it was a difficult race. I could have never have done it. And I've said this again and again if it wasn't for new politics. Because here I am. And people are talking to me about consultants. And I'm going to be frank with you. I don't know. Why do I need a pollster? What do right. they do? Okay. Right. right. And I need a male person. I didn't need any of this for state rep. I did it all myself. I designed my mailers myself, wrote the message myself. I didn't need to poll people. You know, so for me, it was embarking on, on an, in an area where I just didn't have all of the knowledge to begin with, learned it as I was going. Um, and here I was doing it, flying to DC, having events hosted for me, giving my stump speech, um, and running for Congress and, you know, speaking to you now about it, like this was a lifelong dream that I remember in 2011, we were in New Hampshire as a family. And I said to my cousin, Porphy, um, you know, I'm going to run for, for Congress for that Nikki Songacy. He's like, that's impossible. You could never do that. And here I was doing it. Doing it. I mean, if that is not the American story, I don't know what is. I love it. And I, I do have to ask because, you know, you're raising all these concerns that we hear from so many people and especially people of color and women of color of imposter syndrome. And who am I to be in these seats? How did say say a little bit more about how you kind of work with those voices in your head and just push past them? Yeah. You know, I think in the first early weeks, I had a little bit of that. And then I started seeing the candidates that were running. And I was like, I am a state representative. I am doing the very work that I would be able to do at a larger scale in the federal government. Yeah. And so I started owning who I was mm-hmm. and what and my qualifications and and kind of never looked back and, and said to myself, I've been serving this district. I've never left this district. I've found time and time again, a way to come back and be of service and make a difference in the lives of people. And if that's not what we should measure public servants by, I don't know what we should. So for me, I started realizing I am the best option for this district. And I've demonstrated it with my actions and commitment to the third district. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it doesn't come back, right? Because I would go to like, radio show interviews with white colleagues who'd say, well, why aren't you running for Senate? And, you know, in retrospect, it's who are you to define what my qualifications are and how high or low I set the bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's keeping people around you that keep you grounded, that remind you of your qualifications and what you bring to the table. And for me, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Max, even in managing my campaign, it took me some time to own I'm the boss this campaign has to meet my vision. Yeah. Um, and it was because, again, here I am embarking on something really big, happening very fast. Yeah. I mean, one of the hardest things about running for Congress, it's like your time, you don't control your time and your time is consumed in more than what you have time for. Yeah. And so you're making very quick decisions that sometimes you don't have the opportunity to ponder, yeah. to get um, a soundboard, you know, from someone else. And so for me here, I was moving very quickly. I felt like I didn't always, you know, 
know who, what was what. And in the beginning stages of my campaign, I was forgetting that I was the boss. Like these people are here because they believe in me, my profile, what I will bring to this district. And I quickly realized um, that that shouldn't be the case. And so, you know, I started saying, hold on, who are we hiring? These people don't look like my community. Pause. I need to be a part of the interviews. Yep. And then I started seeing people that looked like me that spoke my community's language, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I started taking more ownership of my campaign, but I think in the beginning I was just kind of intimidated to do so. And, and in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, I had already done this. I ran for state rep pretty much on my own, but running at this larger scale with so many other consultants and parties involved I, I think in the beginning i was a little intimidated but then i came in, in into my power yeah and started, love it. And started realizing hold on at the end of this i need to be proud of it's whatever this wants to be it's yep. my campaign and i need to be able to look back and say wow we ran a campaign on the values that i stand for the campaign looks like the community i seek to serve and i am proud of the decisions i've made and you're not going to be proud of all of them right because again, one of the hardest challenges of a campaign, it's a short time period you have and you, your time is consumed and people are pulling you in a million directions. And most importantly, I was an elected official and I had just been elected as an official. And so for right. me, I had to fulfill the obligations of that seat to be a, a, a state representative for the city of Lawrence, right? And so balancing those two things were very challenging uh, but again, I look back and it was, yeah, about winning, but it was also about inspiring an entire demographic to believe that we do belong in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my campaign was able to do that. Love it. I'm, I'm struck by, you know, you ran and successfully ran at the state ledge and then you had this campaign. It was very different. We're always hearing from folks saying, should I run at the state level or the federal level? And then what is the difference between the types of campaigns? So just say a little bit more about how they're different. Yeah, um, they're very, very different. The amount of money you have to raise is astronomically different. So let's begin there. So I won a state rep race with $40,000. I will do a disclaimer there. The incumbent didn't raise money, right? That could have been a a race that you needed to raise $80,000. It's still nothing compared to a million dollars. You, I got away with running a campaign uh, for state rep with five, six volunteers. I didn't have any paid staff. You cannot get away with that at the congressional level, right? right. I mean, you represent 40,000 people in a state rep role. You know, you're, you're representing over 750,000 people in a congressional role. So drastically different, the capacity, the resources, the staffing, um, the geography, right? Like I could walk my district in a couple hours, right? Impossible to do for a congressional district. I mean, I would be just exhausted from being in the car and going from one community to the next. And also being able to engage and interact with very different communities, right? When I was running for state rep, I represented an immigrant population, right? The congressional district, very rich, right? Very poor, right? Progressive, conservative, middle of the ground, and so even the skill sets you need 
to kind of transcend those distinct worlds in the congressional uh, race was different. I mean, the demands were different, right? Like I didn't have staff sleeping in my house when I was running for state rep. Like, right, I could do, I, I campaigned seven days a week, but I could end at six or seven, not for Congress. You need to be and meet so many demands across so many communities um, and your time isn't yours. And so big differences. Another one is dealing with consultants. I had no consultants during my um, state rep race. You know, new politics was not a consultant. They were providing me pro bono guidance. Congress, you know, here I was and I was like, well, I don't want to pay the pollster $30,000 because why would I just spent three weeks to raise $30,000? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, people won't take you serious. To enter the arena and be taken serious, you need to check off these boxes. And so a lot of different challenges, um, you know, policy. I can, I can tell you the biggest concerns for the city of Lawrence. I live there. Right. I know them because I've lived those concerns in a really meaningful way. And when you go get into Congress, it's like, well, when I go to New England, they care about climate change. Well, I'm a poor working class person. Climate change is a privilege. Right. right. Um, and so, right. Although there are a lot of racial equity issues, when you talk to poor working class people, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about food on the table. Yeah. How am I going to make ends meet? How do I pay the rising cost of rent? And so even as you think about how you're preparing as a candidate for Congress, I mean, there are so many federal, international, global issues that you need to also get be well-versed on that I'll be perfectly frank with you. I was not well-versed on because my job didn't demand it. Being right. a state representative demanded understanding Lawrence. And so just a lot. So how did and it work? Do you feel like over the course of the campaign, you, you got to a level where you were like, I can talk? about this. It's another thing we hear of like, I don't know the answers to all these things. So how can I possibly do this? But you didn't know and you did. So how did it work? Yeah, And I feel like I'm being super frank and this is going to live somewhere on the line, (laughs) but that's okay. Cause it's the realities of running for office. So there were things, you know, like international policy, um, where I didn't feel as comfortable that I really understood the issue. And then I would see staff will say, well, you need to think this. And I'd be like, well, what's your vantage point? Like, great. I know that you think I need to think things, but I want to hear the other side. Because I want to reach an objective conclusion. And so um, I definitely, definitely rose to the occasion. So any um, policy areas I didn't feel comfortable, I started reading up on, asking staff to do memos, asking volunteers and interns to write me memos. I wanted both sides. I did not want people to give me conclusions. I wanted to reach conclusions on my own. And that helped. And I think I drove the staff crazy because I, you know, I remember David, I'd be like, well, David, I, I don't know the policies. Like you don't need to be a policy expert on everything. And that's another thing that I would, you know, push back on. Like you need to know the issues, but you can be the policy expert on housing, on poverty, on education, on higher ed. It's just not realistic, right? You need to build a team that helps you reach the right conclusions on behalf of the people you hope to represent and you need to have a general assessment. So I think it's finding that middle ground. I definitely was able to get up to par, but it's because I self-advocated and said, I will not do X, Y, and Z until I have the information I need. And I think you're going to constantly battle with that. But the more you interact with the information, the more you read your stump speech, the more you practice it, the more it becomes natural to you. Um, And I was really lucky that new politics was able to like, just provide me the interns and the staff to get me to feel comfortable um, because you're only going to perform at your best 
when you feel your best. And um, I was able to get there, but it, but you know, the first couple of weeks and, and mounting a team uh, took some time. It's intense. And any advice on how you, how do you stay resilient through this? I mean, what you're talking about is incredibly intense, demanding, complex, um, and you woke up every day and kind of rocked it. How did you stay resilient through it all? Max, I think back about it and I'm like, I don't know how I did it. Mm. Somehow I got up every single day. I met every single obligation of being a state representative. And I ran a campaign with least amount of resources than any other candidate, but at the same level that they were. Yeah. And, um, you know, your staff are really important. And I must say, you know, my staff showed up every day and they made huge sacrifices and they made sure that I showed up every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not going to be like always high energy and that you're going to have your, your best performance. It fluctuates. Some days you're going to have great performances. Some days you're not right. I'm going to keep it real. There were days where I was like, I have to go to this other event. It's like <laughs> nine o'clock. I'm exhausted. Right. Cause you have to be on all the people time. Do not want to talk to a candidate who's not on like you need to excite people about you. Right. And so from 6 a.m. in the morning till 10 and 11, if you are running events, you are on. There is not a more exhausting job than being a candidate. And I think sometimes it's glamorized. And the reality is, you know, here you are voting, talking to voters, doing a debate, being on TV, being on the radio, then going to an event where you have 50 people who are investing in you and want your time. And you need to be ready to deliver and be at your best but also understand that you're going to have your ups and your downs and not every day is going to be the same. And if I can give any advice to a candidate is you need to push back on your staff. You will be your best if you dedicate some time to yourself. Mm. So right? push back. They're going to want all of your time, right? So you're all saying- All of your time. Yeah. Even the time that doesn't exist, your staff wants it. And you need to push back. And that's what I learned and say, well, you know what? Six to seven is my workout time, mm. non-negotiable. If negotiable, it's because I've made a decision for it to be negotiable. Um, events, we need to add events at nine. I want to be home by 10 because I want to spend time with my significant other. I want to be in bed by 1030 so that I you do it again. Need to, yeah. yeah, I would need to do it again. Um, yeah. And so you need to re-energize and recenter yourself and refocus. And the only time you do that is by dedicating some time to you. And I don't want staff in my house this weekend. I need, you know, and so that's what I would suggest candidates to take into consideration. You know, you are in the midst of a really important campaign. So you will have to sacrifice a lot, but there has to be um, a middle ground of you also taking care of yourself. When I was running for office, like the stress, the not eating well, the not, you know, going for a walk or going to the gym was detrimental. I will never allow that to happen again. Powerful, powerful. And so for folks who don't know how it ended, you ended up coming in third, right? Uh, you did not win, but you overperformed. Um, so what, you know, with a little bit of hindsight, what lessons do you take from it? So many lessons that I don't know if I can capture them here. Give me your, but your top couple here. The first lesson is that winning, winning is, should not be the measure. For me, it wasn't. I went into it to win, but it was also about activating an entire community believe of 
that we belong in these places. And I think my campaign did that. The fact that we ran a campaign, that we were viable, that even though we raised less money than most candidates, we outperformed most candidates. Right. And it's shown an entire generation of young people of color to believe that we can be public servants and we can do this at the federal level. Um, so we were able to accomplish that. Um, it allowed me also to, to reinforce my values around who I want to be as a public servant. And so I had mentioned some things, Max, about how my campaign team looked like. Was it representative of my community? And so for me, that process, the process of hiring, the process of managing, the process of engaging with stakeholders and, and consultants gave me a deeper understanding of who I am and how I will continue to move through my profession the way that I will always speak up, call things out if they're not representative of what, what I'd like and my values. So, you know, it, it made me become even stronger, <laughs> I would say. Amazing. Um, and I'm happy to walk into any room in any space in a more, you know, in an unshaken way where I don't, that imposter syndrome doesn't exist for me anymore. Um, because I know what I bring to the table. I know what I can accomplish and I know what I want things to look like. And my congressional race allowed me to take, take things to the next level for myself. So powerful. So powerful. So I'll just ask it directly. What's, what advice do you have, especially for the people of color in our community who are wondering, should I enter the arena? What would you tell them? Absolutely. It was worth it. You know, although I did not win my race, um, like I said, I influenced others to believe that we belong. And then I ended up with very, in a, at Mass Inc. doing fulfilling and meaningful work. Yeah. Tell us a little more. Tell us what you're doing now. Yeah. So now I am the chief operating officer of Mass Inc. We are a nonpartisan public policy think tank, and we are also the publisher of Commonwealth Magazine, which is a civic news organization, a nonprofit civic news organization. And I get to do what I love. I get to work on policies um, that address inequities in education and transit and houses, housing and the criminal justice system. I get to advance these policies um, across the state. Um, and I love the work. And I've gained a new area of work that I hadn't thought about. And that's journalism. And I've mm. come to understand how important journalism is to democracy and to accountability uh, of state government. So being, being able to manage that team and see uh, the role it plays in, in people's lives has been really gratifying and has allowed me to learn a new area of work. Um, and I, I don't think I would have gotten there had it not been for my run for Congress, right? I, I was running to win and to serve a community. But if I didn't, I'd hope that my race would inspire others, those that are coming behind me, and also position me to continue to do meaningful work. And I must say that it worked out in that way. Um, and I continue to, you know, advance policies in the state house that speak to to the needs of communities that look like me. Fantastic, fantastic. That you know, there are a lot of people who say, "What if I lose? Like, will this destroy my life?" You know, I know people have that concern, but it sounds like you put your name out there, you fought like hell, you didn't win, but you were out there in a different way that made all sorts of opportunities possible, right? Absolutely, and I think. Yeah. 
winning should not just be the only measure. And I can tell you that because I've, I've run twice and I've always been like, well, what if I lose? You will gain so much. Like I wasn't able to really articulate very well, but running for Congress allowed me to go grow personally, professionally. It allowed me to manage an entity. Um, and it's going to serve you in so many ways. You're going to take the lessons of a race and it will serve you in so many ways. And you'll build relationships that continue to fulfill you long, down the line, right? So I'm still in touch with the majority of staffers that were in my race. Um, I see them as, as family, as an extended family. And so it's not just about winning, although winning should be at the top of the pyramid. You gotta be in it to win it, right. Yeah, but you there's never guarantee. But I guarantee you, you're going to gain so much more. Um, You know, running a campaign is tough work. It's gritty work. You need to be dynamic. You need to be uh, someone who's able to multitask, right? There's so many moving parts. There's the field, the communication, the strategy, the outreach, the engagement. Um, And when you're able to do that, you can do pretty much anything else. It's amazing. So I know we're getting to the end of our time here. There's one question I just have to ask you, which is the the connection to purpose is so powerful for you. Where do you think it came from? And do you do anything to cultivate it? Like just how do you stay so grounded in that? I think if you don't know your purpose in the public service arena, you'll end up engaging in the in work that can only be detrimental to you. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, from the very get-go, I knew why I was there and what I was there to do. And allowing myself to have that lens allowed me to engage in, a, in work that made me proud, right? So I could allowed me to have, okay, so who am I here to serve? I'm here to serve X, Y, and people. And what would they expect of me? You know, you look back and you're able to be like, wow, you know, I invested my time in a way that made a positive difference in the lives of people who entrusted me with their vote. And so it's just, it's central to who I am. Like I want to walk in into any initiative or program and know that my time is in, it's being invested in something that's really making a positive difference in the lives of others. And if it's not, I don't want to be a part of it. And I think it's important to keep people, have people around you that keep you grounded it's important for you to introspect constantly. Um, you know, the Safe Communities Act is a perfect example. Wait, wait, wait. Why am I here? Am I here to play nice mm-hmm. only? Or am I here to shake up and make some good trouble on behalf of people who haven't had a voice? Right. And so you ask yourself these questions and these, and then it'll help you centralize why you're there and get you right back on track. Um, and for me, it's like, There are people who look at politics as a chess game. I move this piece and I get X, Y, and Z. Absolutely not. There are people Mm. who say that politics is not personal. It absolutely is. Everything you do in the public arena speaks to who you are and what your values are. So when I was running for office and people would say, well, let's do this against the incumbent. I'd say, absolutely not. I'm winning this race on a positive note, on my qualifications, what I bring to the table and the difference that I'm going to make on behalf of people. 
when I was in governance, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, leadership will do this. Well, how does X, Y, and Z impact my community for the worst? Right. Mm -hmm. I remember getting a call and being, Hey, we need you to vote X, Y, and Z. Well, that doesn't support the community that I serve who was just cut millions of dollars. So you tell me what you're going to do for my community and then we can re-engage in this conversation. And so again, if you're in this for the right reason and you use that framework to make decisions, you will stay true to who you are and you will be proud of the work and the legacy that you leave behind. And it's a part of who I am and all I do. And that's what helps me be able to be stay grounded and true to my values and my morals and they're non-negotiable. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell it comes through so clearly, I guess anything else you want to say to feel complete in this, you know, episode for our, for our new politics community. I encourage people to run. Um, like I said, it's, it's a win-win either way you learn, you gain social capital, which I didn't mention previously, right. Of people who you didn't know previously, And it's such an incredible positive experience. And, you know, I look back now and I engage with constituents and they're like, you know, I just, I just was able to enroll in paid family leave. And I'm like, well, I voted on that. Or I talked to, Mm. you know, that person who was able to seal their record. And I'm like, well, I voted on that bill. I mean, it's work that's dynamic. Every day is different, but you see in tangible and palpable ways, the way you do impact people's lives for the better. So love it. Love it. Well, Juana, you are a force of nature. Thank you for making time and sharing your story and your wisdom with our community. Just appreciate you. Max, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you to New Politics. I am the candidate that I am because you guys have been in my corner since day one. And it's always a pleasure and privilege to share why public service is so important. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve again through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. If you're a fan of what we're doing with this podcast, I invite you to become a subscriber and give us a positive rating. It's a small act that helps us out in a big way. And if you believe in the work that we're doing here at New Politics, please consider donating via our website to support our efforts to revitalize American democracy by bringing more servant leaders like Juana into politics. I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for the nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.